Man, got a lot to live up to now. Cool. I'm going to ask just for a a bit of grace from you guys this morning. I'm going to have my mobile phone on and on here. And I'll explain you why. I've got a little... uh, My daughter, Maylee, she's only 13 months, but she's not very well. Ah, it's like Panto. Uh, and uh, she likes, she, she's, she's not like any, it's not really serious or anything, but she's, you know, it's her first kind of proper illness with antibiotics and stuff. And I got her up this morning, she looked at me like, am I going to make it, Dad? <laughs> you know, so I'm just putting it, just in case my wife phones up and says we need to run out or anything, at which point you'll see me run out. So thank you for that. That'd be really good. So let's start off uh, with a pop quiz, okay? Because I know you guys are intelligent. You've got teachers here. I've got amazingly great thinkers here. So I'm going to ask you a question. This isn't one of those preacher rhetorical questions. This is one where you actually I want you to shout out answers. And I'm hoping that none of you are really clever, because if someone gets it first time, it's going to ruin it, okay? But let me ask you a question. What is the largest natural structure, landmass on the earth? Grand Canyon? Grand Canyon. Yeah. No, not quite. Anyone else? Someone say Australia. (laughs) Great lateral thinking there. I like that. The earth. Okay. Now, I don't actually, now you've said Grand Canyon, you might be right. But as far as I know, and having done some research, i.e. watch TV, um, I found out that actually one of the largest, if not the largest, natural land structures, natural kind of land mass, is a thing called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Anyone heard of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge? Like everyone. See, I thought it was just me. Wow, this is embarrassing. Anyway, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is, is, is deep underwater. And uh, they say, I think the average depth of the ocean is like 12,000 feet, something like that, 13,000 feet. Um, so if you go about 9,000 feet down, you'll find this massive uh, ridge, but it's more like a kind of mountain range with valleys and all kinds of stuff. Um, it rises uh, somewhere between a, a mile and two miles off the, the seabed. It is some 6,000 6, miles long. Now you try and get your head around that. This is ridiculous. I love this stuff. I love anything to do with uh, under the ocean. I'm into it. I'm one of these guys, you know, just all the creatures and things. I'm into it. I love that stuff. And the very thought that actually there are mountains far bigger under the ocean than anything we see above just blows my mind. I don't know about you, it just, just freaks me out. Because you go for a swim in the ocean, or you're on a boat, or you fly over it in a plane, you think, there's the sea, not much going on. But actually, deep down, in the foundations of the earth, there's this mass of structures and, and life going on. Now, I've been watching the, the Blue Planet, ever seen that? We, we, we bought it for Burn, and I stole it and watched a DVD kind of box set over a weekend. Awesome. And I found out about this Mid-Atlantic Ridge. So why am I telling you this? Basically because we've been running through something called uh, Essential Church. And uh, this is the third week of it. And we've been looking at what actually constitutes, what actually is essential for a genuine church. What are the ingredients that need um, to, to, to be in it? And part of what I want to talk about this morning is something that is huge and is massive and is completely foundational to being a genuine church, a church that's following Jesus and is trying to follow the will of God. 
but actually is often invisible and you don't see it. You might not, if I was to get you to write down what's essential for a church, and you might jot a lot of things down, but some of you, you might miss this one off because even though it's huge, it's massive, it's often uh, below the surface and, and often it can be quite subtle and, and it can be messed, especially uh, messed, missed, especially in kind of more maybe contemporary churches. So what am I going to talk about? We'll get into that, but I, I, I want to start with where Jesus starts. So just to give you a bit of background before I do that, we've, uh, the couple of weeks that have come before me, um, Dennis did a wonderful um, talk on, I guess, I, I would say that community, what real community is like in a genuine church. And all the talks that we do in the morning are all on the podcast, so go to uh, iTunes or go to the vineyardchurch.co.uk and you can get all these, okay? So he did this great talk on community, what it means to be in relationship with one another and with God. It was amazing. And then last week, Chris did a, a talk, and he talked about how we, we're called to do many different things, but there's one thing that we're called to that if we don't do it, no one else will. And he talked about our unique calling to share Jesus with people, to tell people and explain to people what we found in Jesus. Great talks. Please check them out. But we're going to move on. This is the, the third week. And I want to start um, right where Jesus started. So I'm going to read something to you from Luke. And this is right at the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry, if you want. So Jesus has, has been born, and then it's gone a bit quiet. We hear um, a little bit from him uh, around the age of 12. He kind of loops in a little bit and then disappears again until he's around 30. And then he, he comes out, if you want. And he arrives on the scene. And this is kind of his opening statement about what he's going to be about for the next three and a half years. What he's going to be about until he goes to the cross. Okay, so let me read it to you. It's in Luke 4. You're more than welcome to, to go to it if you like. I'm going to read a little bit more than is on the screen, but we'll, we'll catch up. It says this, uh, Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Soon he became well known throughout the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues and, and was praised by everyone. Uh, When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll containing the message of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled it and the scroll, uh, unrolled the scroll to the place where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be freed and that the blind will see and that the downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. Everyone in the synagogue stared at him intently. Then he said, this scripture has come true before your very eyes. This scripture has become true. Before your very eyes. So here we have this moment. Jesus is starting out. And like anyone who starts out to to run for office or or to start some sort of organization or or, or something, they kind of get a statement together. They kind of say, they want want people to know, this is what I'm going to be about. These are going to be the values that, that drive what we do. So Jesus starts here with this statement from Isaiah. And you've probably heard it before if you've been around a bit. But it's actually... Quite an amazing thing. And it cuts across a lot of what many religious leaders of the day would say. Many people in Jesus' position would not have read this. Certainly would not have said this scripture has come true before your very eyes. 
You see, in the days of Jesus, there were many rabbis and teachers and there was a, a, a great love of the law and of, and of God. But they had got to a place where it seemed that they loved the laws and the traditions more than actually the one who they were about. So Jesus comes along and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim that captives will be freed and that blind will see and that downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors. In Jesus' day, people were often shut out and marginalized depending on their position in life, depending on their money or whether they were born with some deformity or of a certain race. Now, I'm glad that it doesn't happen anymore. But in this day, it was rife, just like it is today. And Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus says, actually, I've come for everyone. I've come for everyone. And he begins with the people who are most pushed out. Most ignored. He doesn't begin with the religious people. He doesn't begin with the rich people. He doesn't begin with, I've come to hang out with the people who already agree with me. I've come to hang out with the people who are already part of this synagogue. He said, I've come for the poor. I've come for the rejected. I've come for the outcast. I've come for those who who are pressed down, who are abused. And this is a a startling statement from Jesus. Sometimes we can hear this and we hear this stuff so much, we don't stop and think about what it is really means. Jesus saying, I've come for everyone. That the good news I have is for everyone. I was in St. Albans Town Centre yesterday. Me and my wife went in and um, trying to actually give Maley some air. And uh, uh, we got a Cornish pasty from the Cornish pasty shop because, you know, it's all good. And we sat down in a little square. At the clock tower, there's a guy preaching. Who's ever been in town where there's someone preaching at the clock tower? There's a few of them, right? And there's a guy there, and it was the weirdest guy I'd ever seen. He was standing on his own little step ladder that he bought, and he was wearing a beanie and sunglasses he couldn't see his eyes. And he was wearing a white bulletproof vest. So obviously, it hadn't gone well for him before. And uh, one of his sermons was this. Britney Spears has left God and moved into sin. And I'm standing, I'm thinking, that's not a good opening line, mate. That's not good news. That's old news. And he carried on and on. And I won't tell you too much. I went up and had a chat with him afterwards and he was a very freaky guy in the end. But (laughs) we can talk about a bunch of stuff. And we can have our, uh, have our moment of, of this is what it's about. But here's Jesus and it's good to look at it and go, look, this is what it's about. It's about good news for everyone. And this is a Lucan thing. This is a, Luke, the writer of this gospel. He wrote this and he also wrote Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke has a, a, um, a special interest. A lot of gospel writers, uh, the four gospels, they write, but they, they write for specific audiences if you want they're not lying they're not changing the truth they're just saying they're just trying to cater it for the the audience that's going to get it first and Luke wants us to know that Jesus is for everyone and part of the thing that runs through the gospel of Luke and runs through the acts of the apostles is this thing of Jesus brought salvation and healing for anyone who wants it no one would be left out 
No one was to be marginalized and put down and not included. So leaving Luke and carrying on actually to Acts, the, the second part, if you want, of, uh, of Luke's story. And going to Acts 2, he says this. This is about the early church. He says, a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. And all the believers met together constantly and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day and met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. A couple of key things out of there. This is talking about after Jesus' ministry has been done and he's suffered the cross and he's risen from the dead and he's gone off and he said to the church, now do what I do. This is what the church did. They began to preach and teach and go to the synagogues just as Jesus did. But the thing that they'd got, the thing that they'd learned from hanging around from Jesus is everyone, everyone is in. Everyone is to be included and remembered and offered what Jesus offers. So it talks about them. It says they sold their possessions and they shared the proceeds with those in need. It says they shared meals with great joy and with generosity. And it said that they enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. So here's the early church and they're getting something that is essential about church. They're understanding something that is so basic to being a follower of Jesus. It's that you have to not just be concerned with the friends around you, with just some strange target audience you're trying to get, but everyone, and especially the marginalized. You must especially keep your eye on those who are thought of as nothing, those who are thought of as weak, those who are abused and pushed out and pressed down. You must go to them. This good news is for the poor, it's for the downtrodden, it's for the oppressed. Carrying on a little bit in a, another book. I'm really flying through the books today. It's good. There's a church leader called Paul. Now, Paul had an encounter with Jesus and straight away just began to go uh, and to preach and to teach and to tell people about Jesus and what he'd found. But about 14 years into doing it, into preaching and planting churches, he suddenly asked a question. Hold on, hold on. Uh, am I doing everything I should be doing here? Uh, am, I re- am I missing anything? So what he does is he, he decides to go and meet with these guys that we were talking about in Acts 2. The people who knew Jesus and know the real deal. And he goes and he meets with them just to check that he's doing everything he should be. Now let me read you this. This is in Galatians 2. It won't come up here. I don't think it. I'll just read it. It says this. Um, this is Paul going to see the church leader. He says, The leaders of the church who were there had nothing to add to what I was preaching. They saw that God had given me responsibility of preaching the good news to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter for the benefit of the Jews, worked through me for the benefit of the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the the gift God had given me. And they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. And then it says this. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while, while they continued their work as the Jew, to the Jews. The only thing they suggested was that we remember the poor. 
And I've certainly been eager to do that. The only thing they suggested was that we remember to help the poor. And I've certainly been eager to do that. So here's this church leader going back, if you want, to the people who he sees as maybe knowing more and having a firmer grasp on who God is. And he says, am I I doing everything I should be doing? I'm preaching and I'm making churches and and I'm talking to Gentiles. That's anyone who's not Jewish and uh, I'm trying to tell them about Jesus. And they said, you're doing great and God has gifted you to do it. But one thing we would say is, remember to care for the poor. Remember to care for the poor. And Paul, Paul kind of says, you know, I've certainly been eager to do that. But there's a sense where, even though he might know about it and it's eager, he's, he's neglected it somehow because they've brought it up. They've gone, actually, you need to remember the poor. You need to remember. And at this point, I need you to know that it's okay for lots of churches to do lots of different things. Different churches are going to have different strengths and different ministries according to what God has called them to. So one church may be very kind of, if you want, very scripture driven and very wordy. Another church may be very driven by the arts and and dance. Uh, Another church might be driven by um, having great kind of spiritual experiences of worship and just having those moments of, of praying to God and of heaven coming in. And that's all good. That's all right. God has called different churches to different things. But the one thing he's called all churches to is to remember to care for the poor and to remember to, to, to stand up for the rights of those who are being oppressed and pushed out and ignored. So what do we do? What do we do? Because we're sitting here, right, in this building. So far it's cost us oh, 2.5 million or something like that, this building and, and redoing it and, and everything. So, so what do we do? Do, do we... If we're going to do this, if we're going to support the poor, do we sell the place? You know, because that's, that's, that's a lot of meals, right? We've got like 12 staff here at the moment. What do we do? Do we, do we sack them? I would say no. <sighs> Maybe a couple. No, don't. That's so bad. Suggestions on a postcard. <laughs> you want to go there? Do we, what do we do? do? Do we send all of our money to Africa? Do we just throw our lot in wherever we can? How do we begin, if if this is such a a heart concern of God, that we care for the poor and those on the edge and pushed out, how do we begin to do that and and still function as a church in the way we do? Isn't it a contradiction to be a church like this and churches that are larger, you know, churches in America that are, you know, 300,000, how do they manage to spend all that money, have a running cost and a budget of 10, 15 million a year, yet still do that? And you might think, well, the early church was different. It was maybe easier for the early church to share everything they had because they didn't have the things we have. They didn't have mortgages and car payments and have to take their kids to school and have to buy new iPods and phones and stuff. They didn't have those, that terrible necessity for life. Lord, they didn't have iPhones. They don't know! But actually, it's not really all that different. And uh, we, what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of go back even further than the early church. And we're going to go way back into the Old Testament and look at a character who really has so much to teach us about how to care for the poor, but yet still live our lives and, and, and come to some sort of balance where there's not so much friction and guilt that it kills us, but just enough so that we do stuff. There's a guy called King David. You will know of him. He is one of the most famous kings, if not the most cherished kings uh, in the history of Israel. His, his reign, he, he came uh, from being a small 
young shepherd boy and essentially inheriting a kingdom, kingdom that was not very powerful and, and, and not very, in some ways, rich. To actually reigning in such a way and serving God in such a way and moving in such a way that later on, the people of Israel would say that was the golden era. Under David's rule, that was the golden era. And he took Israel from being a small kind of nomadic people, I guess, to, to being a superpower. And massive kingdoms would come and they would pay tribute to King David because of just the, 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 the power and the, the, the kind of influence of the nation of Israel. But we're going to read from a psalm. Psalm 72. You're welcome to turn to it if you have your Bibles. And uh, this is a... If you read your Bible, you'll see after the psalm it says that this is... Uh, it says in mind, this ends the prayers of David, son of Jesse. And they think this is the kind of the last psalm written by David. And kind of... Uh, some other people think this is maybe to do with a coronation. As though this is David's kind of psalm for passing on to another king and saying, this is how you should live. This is the way you should do things. So let me read it to you. It won't come up on the screen. You can follow it in your Bibles if you want. Just listen. It's up to you. This is Psalm 72. Give justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all and may the hills be fruitful because the king does what is right. Help him to defend the poor and rescue the children of the needy and to crush their oppressors. May he live as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon continues in the skies, yes, forever. May his reign be as refreshing as the springtime rains, like the showers that water the earth. May all the godly flourish during his reign. May there be abundant prosperity until the end of time. May he reign from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Desert nomads will bow before him. His enemies will fall before him in the dust. The western kings of Tarshish and the islands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. All kings will bow before him and all nations will serve him. And he will rescue the poor when they cry to him. And he will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy and he will rescue them. He will save them from, the, from oppression and from violence. For their lives are precious to him. Long live the king. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May the people always pray for him and bless him all day long. May there be abundant crops throughout the land, flourishing even on the mountaintops. May the fruit of the trees flourish as they do in Lebanon, sprouting up like grass in a field. May the king's name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun shines. May all nations be blessed through him and bring him praise. Bless the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does such wonderful things. Bless his glorious name forever and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So here's David writing and... He weaves in and out, and there's part of this psalm as well that um, theologians look at, and they say part of it's, it's, it's got this prophetic edge to it, where David is not just talking about himself or, or saying to future kings, this is how you need to act, but he's looking even forward to what God would do in Jesus. And you can see that as he begins to talk about uh, all the kings will bow before him and all nations will serve him. But there's this kind of, almost kind of, 
fleshly, material kind of side to this psalm where there's this rich, amazingly powerful king and he's saying, Lord God, give me more. Give me more. Let there be an abundance. Let me have an abundance of crops and of land. Let me have an abundance of money. Let all the other nations around see how powerful we are and come and essentially um, give us worship. Bow to us. So there's this part where King David is like already the richest, most powerful guy in the world, but he's calling out for more and for more and for more. But the cool thing, the great thing about King David is he interweaves that with this so. So give me all this more power so I can defend the poor. Give me wealth. Give me renown amongst the other nations so I can stand up for those who don't have a voice. And so much of our culture nowadays, if we're, if we're not careful can be about getting more, get more, have more. You deserve it because you're worth it. Just get it, you know, you just, just why not? You know, it's a credit crunch now, you're all going to be in debt and lose your houses. Buy some more stuff. Just keep going. Just go for it. Because why not? You, you need it. You deserve that. You work hard. And there's a part of that where David's like that, but he's only wanting more and wanting to get more and only asking God for more stuff. So that he can rescue the poor. and So that he can make a kingdom. Make a land that is safe for the downtrodden and those who are on the edges. And you can look at different churches and, and say, you know, should they do this and should they do that? But I don't think it's, it's a bad thing for either individual Christians or churches to be cash rich. To have a lot of toys. To have a lot of stuff. That's fine. It's okay. Go for it. Knock yourself out. But it's their relationship with it. Do they have that stuff because they then want to influence it for what God wants to do? Or do they just want it just so they look cool, so that it works? And if we're going to be an essential church, if we're going to be a church that actually is a genuine church, then it's going to be okay for us to have stuff, maybe in the future to buy more land, have more churches, buy more expensive microphones. You know, have all that stuff. But only if we say to God, give us this stuff, Lord, and then help us to remember the poor. Help us to care for those who are on the edges and pushed out, downtrodden. You know, we're quite, quite a kind of shiny church and we've got nice stuff. And, but we're, we're trying to make sure that we don't forget this stuff. Last year, we gave away 58K. 58,000 to various charities and people working with the poor, with the pushed out, with the marginalized. Some of you will know uh, that we support some guys in India. Some of you have been to India. And what I love about the way Chris has steered us as a church to give is we don't just give to some organization out there just in the clouds. But that he's made sure that we've hooked up and we've had genuine relationships with pastors. So those of you who might know Pastor Samuel or Pastor Moses, you'll know that uh, you know, they visit us. When we can, people visit them, and we give money to them, working with the, with the poor and with the outcasts and with the downtrodden. But we want to see it in action. 
And that's why we give to people that we have a relationship with. So straight away we can see the impact. And, you know, that's what we, that's what we gave. But that's not the only thing we gave last year. We, we have discretionary funds as well because we're a large church and you guys give generously. We had other ways we could give people one-off gifts to families and individuals in, in trouble. So let me tell you some more ways that um, you can get involved. I guess one way you can get involved is to help us continue to do that. So give. It's quite a simple thing. Quite a blatant plug. <laughs> give. You know, if you're part of us, if you're part of what God is doing here in St. Albans at this vineyard, we would just encourage you just to get into some sort of regular giving. Because the more people we have in here and the more we give, the more we can plan to give away. The more power we can, if you want, get, and the more we can say, God, use it. Thank you for all these resources, Lord. Use them. So many of you I know, like me, um, you've got a direct debit. just goes out every month. You don't ever see it. That's kind of good, right, that you never see it? <laughs> it just kind of goes. That's one thing you can do. Secondly, we're, we're beginning beginning to get some great ministries pop up. Some great ways for you guys to get involved and actually influence the lives of people who are struggling with money, who are struggling socially, who are outcast, who are cut off for various reasons. Let me give you a list of some of the things you can get involved in. We have a ministry called Feed. You know, I often speak about it. What that is, is we ask you to buy more food than you need and we give it to people who have a need for more food than they have. For people who actually just are struggling to eat, that tomorrow they don't know where a meal's coming from. And it's a wonderful, simple, yet powerful thing to be able to say that's coming from us. You don't know next week how you're going to eat. We do because we've been planning your meals. And that's a wonderful thing. We have some other things. We have uh, Vineyard Active, which is a group of people who look to... Um, serve people with the needs to do stuff, but maybe they're, they're cut off somehow. So someone needs a, a garden cleared. Someone needs, I guess, maybe shopping done, summit painted, something like that. We, we, let's get, we let's get a group of people to say, we'll do that for you. We'll do that for you. We have something else called uh, Just Action, which is uh, Roger Chisnell, and he, uh, he's been around somewhere probably. But uh, a group of guys who are looking not just to at a very, very sort of face-to-face level, but look at actually how, the, how governments, how policies are actually unjust. And, and they, they, Roger's always sort of sending emails to everyone and getting the team together and saying, we need to go to Parliament, we need to go to this, we need to write to our MP to change this stuff. All these areas and more are just amazing, amazing ways to begin to go. The good news is for the poor, it's for the outcast. It's not just for us here on a Sunday. Another thing you can do is give extra. <laughs> and uh, give extra to us, that would be great. But also, um, I, I think it's a strange thing if you ask me. If Christians just give to churches. I do. I think it's a strange thing. Um, I, I, uh, since we had Mailey, we Zoe and I have started giving to Great Ormond Street. We started giving to, I have to remember, I, I always say the RSPCA and I don't. I mean the NSPCC, the other one, okay. Someone else is looking after the dogs, not me. I've got, I got the kids. Uh, on my watch. Because, you know, with Maley, we were like, wow, how could people abuse a baby? How can a baby suffer just because there isn't money to pay for doctors and pay for care? So we, we were like, we've we got to give some money to that. And that's okay. okay. You should actually 
definitely support the community you're in, but also just, just ask God, God, where, where, where do you want me to do stuff? Where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to give? And lastly, and this is a huge one, this is a huge one, live the rescue. Live the rescue. Now, let me explain that. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, and then stand back a bit, what you'll see is the overarching story is that God is a rescuer. God is a rescuer. That from day one, people have gotten into trouble and bad spots and we've mistreated one another and we've we've bound each other up and there's been violence and there's been oppression and there's been division. But constantly God has weaved himself into our history to rescue us. And there are moments of great rescue where God, for instance, goes into Egypt and he rescues the Israelites out. There are minor rescues where God saves individuals and it it speaks of God's power. And then there's Jesus. Jesus who came to rescue us. And now, our job is not just to enjoy the rescue that we've received, but actually go, there's, there's rescue for others. So anyone you come across, anyone in your family, in your relationship, at your, at your work, anyone you run into, there's going to be areas where they are struggling and it might be money it might be health it might be all kinds of stuff and your job now as as children of the rescue is to live out the rescue for those people and to care for them and to speak for them and this isn't all about your money and your resources this is sometimes about will you talk to that person no one's talking to will you care for that person that they're so difficult to love they smell they're obnoxious they're rude will you care for them I have this habit, I always say to Zoe, I said, why do the weirdos like me? <laughs> are you like this? I go, why do the we- always the weirdos are attracted to me? If I'm sitting on a bus, some guy will walk in and he's obviously weird, he's a couple of, a couple of cans short of a six pack and I'm thinking, he's going to come to me. <laughs> and he does. Why? And I, I'm saying this to my Zoe, I said, look, why? What happens, what is about the strange people in life who are attracted to me? And she said, Rick, they feel sorry for you. (laughs) We are all in need in various ways. And we all have our problems and our struggles. But for those of us who have found Jesus, for those of us who are traveling with him through life, Our values need to change and the way we do things need to change. And part of the foundation of being a genuine church and being a genuine community of believers is that we need not just to look to our friends, the people we're comfortable with, the people we like, but we need to go, this is good news for everyone. It's good news for the poor. It's good news for those pushed out and afflicted and oppressed and ignored and mocked. And thought of as nothing. It's good news for them. I'm just going to finish with a a scripture from Jesus. And I'm not going to really unpack it too much. Hopefully it's on there. It's in Luke 6. And some words of Jesus, you know, um, they're very simple. Yet, if you actually try and apply them, they're a killer. And this is one of those verses. But this is what he says. He says this. Give what you have to anyone who asks for it. 
And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do for others as you would like them to do for you. Good luck unpacking that one. Can I have the band back up? Would you guys mind standing? Caring for the poor and the oppressed and the outcast is not some special extra. It's essential. So I'm just going to pray and then we'll worship. But um, I understand that part of this is God changing our hearts. And if there's any great change in what we value, it has to begin by God doing something in our hearts. So I'm just going to pray. Actually, I'm going to wait for a moment. And if you're in that place where it's like, Rick, those words make sense, but I like my stuff and I don't know how, how to do that. I just want you to just open up to God. I'm just going to pray and just ask God to come and begin to, to reform our hearts a little bit and give us his values. So let's just wait for a second.